You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another episode of The Corbett Report podcast, and I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 22nd day of December 2010. Hard to believe that it is already almost the end of the, the year 2010, and we are almost into 2011. That's going to take some getting used to, but at any rate, I'm glad to have you here for this midweek bonus edition of the podcast. Of course, this is Documentaries That Matter, where we play the audio of various documentaries that I think are worth paying attention to. And I want to, this week, feature the newly released Corbett Report 2009 Video Archive DVD, because, and here's my rationale, uh, as I'm sure my listeners might uh, have thought about in the past, or maybe they can take a moment to think about it now, all of the incredible, talented filmmakers who have agreed to let me play the audio of their documentaries on this podcast have, in effect, given the work that they have often spent years creating out to the world for free simply because they want the information to get out. So whether it be Dan Dix or John Hankey or Paul Verge or Bill Still or any of the other excellent documentary filmmakers who have so generously allowed me to play the audio of their documentaries for free without any type of monetary compensation, well, they have been doing an excellent service to humanity in helping to spread their information even further than it could ever possibly get if it was put up behind a price barrier. And of course, that's why I always exhort listeners to go and support the filmmakers by buying the DVDs, because if you don't support these people who are giving away their blood, sweat, and tears for free simply because they want to inform you, well, if you don't support them, they will not be able to continue putting their life's work into this type of information. So, in the interest of walking the walk, I am, of course, not asking any filmmaker to do anything that I wouldn't do myself. So, I'm going to play the audio of the newly released DVD that is now available for purchase, of course, from CorbettReport.com, and click on the banner on the side uh, tab, and it'll take you to the place where you can watch the YouTube uh, advertisements and find out a little bit more about the uh, DVD itself, and then you can go and purchase it. It's $15, and that will... $15 Canadian, and that will um, get you the DVD and shipping anywhere in the world. So um, I I think it's a it's a reasonable thing to, to ask for, and especially because this is in lieu of asking for donations, I would prefer to be able to give someone something concrete and something that they will then be able to take and burn copies of and give out to people and help to unlock others' minds. So let's get straight into today. Uh, suffice it to say there are nine videos on this DVD, but there are three which we will not be playing the audio of. Uh, one of them being the sunny climes of Western Japan, and I will include a link in the documentation for this episode to that YouTube video, because as I'm sure my YouTube viewers will know, I did release that video uh, for free on my YouTube channel, so you can go and watch that. But it is really just a music uh, video track with um, some scenes from Western Japan. Some very beautiful scenery, I think, so I wanted to share that and make that part of this DVD. And also, Santa Claus Brings 9-11 Truth to Japan, which um, you may have seen the YouTube version that I put out last year. I've recut that, and it's a little bit longer, and there's some extra little hidden interesting gems in there from the shenanigans that went on with the Santa Claus outfit. But uh, um, again, that doesn't really translate into audio very well, so um, you can look forward to that if you purchase the DVD. And then the other video that we won't be 
playing the audio of on this episode of the podcast is what we actually played in episode 163 of the podcast, Meet James Corbett, and that was an extended take of the interview, which we only feature about 12 minutes or so of in the DVD itself. So if you get the DVD, you can actually watch that video, but you've already heard the audio if you've listened to episode 163 of this podcast, and if you haven't yet, why not go back and listen to that? Because I think it is an interesting interview. But at any rate, so we will not be playing the audio from those three videos off of this DVD, but let's play the audio from the other videos on this DVD, and let's start with an interview that I conducted with Dr. Tim Ball in early August of 2009, and I had the great honor and privilege of meeting Dr. Ball in person in uh, Victoria and actually interviewing him in his home, and uh, he gave me a little tour of Victoria, and it was an excellent opportunity to to meet uh, uh, someone that uh, many people may have read things about Dr. Ball online and probably from... Uh, various sites that attempt to besmirch the reputation of anyone who dares to question the uh, carbon eugenics fraud. Well, uh, I can assure you that from the time that I spent with him that he was an extremely genuine person and an extremely thoughtful person who really does think deeply and is genuinely excited about science. And that shows very clearly, I think, in the interview itself and in all of the, the time I spent with him. He was he was very interested in, in science and uh, the history of science and the philosophy of science. So uh, definitely a very interesting man with a lot of very interesting stories to tell. And uh, in that day that I spent with Dr. Ball in Victoria, um, we recorded, I think, about three, maybe three and a half hours of footage. And uh, there was, uh, I think, six or seven minutes of it was put up in a YouTube video that I released uh, shortly before ClimateGate erupted, when he was actually talking about the very heart of the ClimateGate scandal. He was talking about Dr. Phil Jones and the University of East Anglia, and basically explaining the entire background of ClimateGate, which, out of the three and a half hours of footage that I had from our interview, I just selected that as some of the most compelling information that I wanted to get out on the YouTube channel. So I selected that and put it out, and then lo and behold, a few months later, ClimateGate erupted and basically blew the lid off of that whole story. So it was a very interesting thing, and I guess people who were paying attention to the Corbett Report YouTube channel had a bit of an extra early insight uh, into ClimateGate and were better situated to understand what was happening when it did happen. And that's uh, that's basically all I can hope for with the Corbett Report, is to put my listeners in a situation where they are forewarned and forearmed. So I went back to the uh, to the archives and uh, dug out uh, an, another, I think, excellent and important uh, clip. It's Again, it's only six or seven minutes, but it's uh, a great summary of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and how that scam and fraud was created by Morris Strong, who I'm sure many of my listeners will be familiar with. And uh, he goes into some uh, interesting detail about what the IPCC really is and what it really represents, as opposed to what the the corporate media and the foundation-funded media want to tell you it represents. So I won't talk it to death. Let me just play the audio. Here it is, Dr. Timball on the IPCC. My name is Dr. Timothy Ball. And I have a PhD in climatology from the uh, Queenberry College at the University of London, England. My experience uh, of having chaired commissions of inquiry for government or being on, on commissions of inquiry with government is that commissions of inquiry with government are 
that there are certain things that politicians love. Commissions inquiry in one of them, uh, deficits are another, because with a deficit they can say, oh, sorry, we can't afford that, but then if they want to do something suddenly, magically, the amount of money's there. Um, with a, if, if there's a problem or a conflict that develops, and it's causing a lot of difficulty for the politicians, they can say, oh, we will appoint a commission of inquiry. It'll be independent. And uh, that takes the heat off the issue. Oh, yeah, the government's reacting. They're finally appointed a commission of inquiry. And if they don't, of course, they say, oh, you're afraid to put one on, and you know, you're hiding something. So, okay, we appoint the commission of inquiry. Um, but then what people don't realize is they control the outcome of that commission of inquiry. Now, first of all, they've got the advantage now because if the media comes and say, well, what's going on? Can't talk about it. Commission of Inquiry. Wait till their report comes out. Well, that delays usually two, three, four years, by which time all the political heat's off. But more important is they control it by the terms of reference. And the example I like to use is the Warren Commission Inquiry into Kennedy's assassination. And Judge Warren was asked about something after. He said, well, why didn't you look? Oh, it wasn't in my terms of reference. He'd been limited by those that wrote the terms of reference. And that was my experience. One of the first cases I was asked to look at, and the minister said, uh, I gave, I said, he said, would you look at this? And I said, sure. And then I get the terms of reference. And I said, I can't work with that. I can't provide you with a proper answer, a complete answer with those terms of reference. So of course, then the minister says, well, sorry, that's what you got to work with. And I said, fine, then I'm not doing the job. And I'll go to the media and say, you're trying to limit the investigation here. So I could one-up him uh, with that. And so when they set up the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, Morris Strong, who we, we should talk a lot about, um, he wrote the terms of reference. And uh, the first term of reference was the definition of climate change. And he limited it deliberately to only human causes of climate change. And, uh, of course, that effectively eliminated all the natural causes, natural variability, which is why you see them not looking at things like the sun uh, and, and a whole bunch of other, other issues. And, um, of course, he then limited it even further in uh, another term of reference that you, he, he set it up into three working groups. There was the technical group, working group one, which was, wrote the science report. And that was 600 of the 2,500 people. The other 1,900 were in working groups two and three. Now, they were inconsequential because they had to accept the findings of working group one, which were already limited by their terms of reference. So whatever their finding was, working groups two and three then said, okay, You've, you're telling us it's going to warm. We accept that as fact. We now look at the implications of that. And that's where you hear all these stories about, oh, the, melt, the, the ice is going to melt, the sea level is going to melt. So really, the majority of the report by 1900 scientists is accepting without question the finding of the first group. Now, Strong it really restricted it even more because they then, well, they, they came out and said, look, the, this report is not to be used for policy. But then they set up the summary for policymakers, the absolute contradiction of that. <clears throat> and the summary for policymakers is written by a, a, a completely separate group. 
And then they write it independent of the science report. They write science reports finished and set aside. The summary for policymakers is written and and given out to the media. So, for example, the last report, our, uh, the fourth assessment report, came out in 2007. The summary for policymakers was released in April. The science report wasn't released till November. But the rules, the terms of reference that Strong wrote said that the summary for policymakers goes back to the science report people and says, make sure your science report agrees with what we've put in the summary. So it's like a, a, an executive of a company writing the summary of a report and then telling the employees to find the facts to agree with the summary. And it's the most unbelievable process you can imagine. So it's in those terms of reference through the IPCC that not only have you effectively eliminated most of the major causes of climate change, the natural variability. And of course, if you think about it, unless you know how much natural variability there is, how much natural climate change there is, and what are the fundamental causes of that, you can't possibly identify that fractional part that may be due to humans. But that's that's precisely what they're doing. And uh, so um, that's, that's uh, why... Uh, things appear so illogical, and why so much is left out of of the um, IPCC or Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reports, which have become the authority. Once again, Dr. Tim Ball, and he can be found most easily online at CanadaFreePress.com, where he's a regular columnist. And moving right along, let's go to another video that was taken on my trip to Canada last year, where I not only went to the West Coast, I was also on the eastern side of Canada, and I managed to meet with Dr. Michelle Chosodovsky, obviously a professor of economics at the University of Ottawa, who is the center, the director at the Center for Research on Globalization, which most people will know as globalresearch.ca, an extremely important and uh, very, very well-run site that has a lot of hard-hitting news. So it was a great honor to talk to Dr. Chosodovsky, and I definitely wanted to pull on his uh, economics background and the excellent work he's done in such works as uh, Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order, and draw on his economic background to find out more about the collapse, which is uh, still taking place and was still very much fresh in my memory in uh, August of 2009 or July of 2009 when this video was conducted. This interview was conducted. So uh, let's listen to this. Again, there was a, a different outtake from this interview that was featured on my YouTube page about one year ago, and that was one of the first episodes of Economics 101, where uh, he was talking about the bank bailout. But this is a different, again, I went back to the archives and dug out a different clip from this interview in which he's talking about the economic situation in general and what's really happening with the economic crisis. I think the origins of this crisis go back certainly to the early 1980s. If, if we look at the, the Western countries, we're dealing with uh, major, a major concentration of wealth uh, uh, through the mergers and acquisition booms of the, of the early 1980s. It's, it's often referred to as the Reagan-Thatcher era. Uh, and, 
and that uh, also signified greater concentration of financial power, uh, banking power, um, corporate mergers, and in the developing countries, the early 80s is the onslaught of what we call the debt crisis. It's, it's, uh, uh, it's a process whereby uh, developing countries are no longer able to service the external debt due to declining commodity prices, and where they are then subjected to the uh, to the um, orders of the Britain Woods institutions, the IMF, the World Bank, uh, forms of interference uh, in, in uh, domestic uh, uh, economic policy. Uh, the, the World Bank and the IMF will go in and will order uh, the closing down of, uh, of uh, production facilities, privatization, uh, the freezing of wages, and of course devaluation. Um, and I think what we're now seeing um, is in fact a much more generalized system of, of uh, domination, whereby the, the system which was applied to the IMF and the World Bank, uh, sorry, I'll say that again, the system that was applied by the IMF and the World Bank and imposed on developing countries is now being forced upon the so-called advanced market economies of Western Europe and, and North America. Um, there's a, a degree of financial manipulation uh, which uh, allows for the confiscation of, of, um, of tax revenues, um, using very sophisticated instruments, speculative instruments. Uh, as far as the, the, the origins of the financial crash of 2008, I think we then have to look at um, the 1999 reforms, what was called the Financial Services Modernization Act of 1999. And in fact, it's, it's interesting to note that the architects of the 1999 uh, reforms uh, are the people who are now in the Obama administration. Lawrence Summers was the Secretary of the Treasury under the Clinton administration. Larry Summers did a heck of a job trying to figure out how to... You don't want to use that phrase, I, dude. I, saw. I was... Uh... <laughs> and he was very instrumental in the implementation of of these reforms, which essentially created uh, a global financial supermarket. They, they um, repealed what was called the Glass-Steagall Act of, of the Roosevelt uh, administration, uh, which prevented commercial banks and, and merchant banks, in other words, stock brokerage firms, from merging their activities. There was a certain, still a certain control on speculative trade. And so what we had after 1999 was a surge of derivative trade on an unprecedented level, which also allowed for these major financial conglomerates, which had previously merged into very large banking giants, to manipulate markets, uh, to push the market up and then to push it down, and to make speculative gains in, 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 both, uh, in both the upward movement and downward movement. Now, uh, the, if, we, if we're talking about, uh, if we want to periodize this whole process, 
from the from the 19 let's say from the 1980s we have the debt crisis of the early 80s then of course we have we have the stock market meltdown in 1981 we have another uh, major stock market meltdown in 87 which was uh, very much part of the speculative onslaught and then in the 1990s we have the Asian crisis 1997 the the subsequent uh, in the subsequent year we have the collapse of the Russian ruble uh, and then the following year uh, in 1999 it's the it's the collapse of the of the uh, of the Brazilian real and the and the Sao Paulo stock exchange all these financial crises were in fact the result of financial manipulation they were there explicitly to undermine and destroy national economies the Korean economy was uh, was ransacked um, its uh, assets were sold off to foreign capital uh, there was there were very specific provisions in the IMF um, agreement which stated that certain uh, banking institutions as well as the the whole high-tech economy should be sold off to, to, to foreign capital often uh, what happened uh, in these um, in these restructuring programs is that real assets were transferred to financial institutions or to so-called investors and that these investors in fact even paid a negative price because they were uh, they would then say we need subsidies to protect ourselves against non-performing loans and so on um, and so that the Asian crisis the the collapse of the Russian ruble in 1998 the the same policies applied to Brazil to Turkey uh, all of this set the stage uh, for the current crisis and collapse, uh, which then uh, ultimately led uh, to a major revamping, not only of the financial system, but also of the real economy. Now, uh, if we look at the case of General Motors, um, much has been said in the financial press that General Motors had difficulties and problems, uh, that it wasn't competitive, but in essence, the crash of General Motors was also engineered. And it was engineered uh, in the financial markets uh, in late uh, 2008 when um, Deutsche Bank put out a statement to the effect that they put a zero price on G GM stock. So immediately there was a speculative rush and the and the market values of General Motors collapsed, and they did that systematically for other companies. They they short there was a process of short selling the stocks of major uh, of major U.S. corporations, uh, and uh, and uh, essentially, I think we've reached a stage uh, in this crisis where uh, these major actors, a handful of financial institutions are picking up uh, the real economy at rock-bottom prices. Uh, that is the ultimate objective because there's no uh, sense in actually accumulating paper wealth. The, the, um, the bailouts um, instrumented both under the Bush as well as Obama administrations transferred massive amounts uh, of, tax, uh, of tax dollars to the financial institutions, this money 
is not to rehabilitate the financial system. It is there to provide uh, liquidity to these banks with a view to ultimately consolidating their position in the banking system as well as picking up the real economy. And, and, and we, we see that occurring. In, in other words, what, we're, what we are experiencing currently uh, in, uh, in the United States, Canada, the Western world, is uh, a revamping of the whole productive system. A large part of that productive system will be precipitated into bankruptcy. Uh, that is in the very nature of this recession, declining levels of purchasing power, uh, the absence of credit, um, and so on, will precipitate large number of enterprises into bankruptcy. And then in turn, uh, the, the large financial conglomerates, which have uh, immense purchasing capacity, will buy up entire, uh, entire um, productive systems, uh, service companies, airlines, telephone companies, uh, cable networks uh, at rock bottom prices, and we will, uh, uh, we will see a major shift in the structures of ownership in the, in the, in the global economy. Once again, Dr. Michelle Chosadovsky is available at globalresearch.ca. Well, let's move right along to the next uh, video that I'd like to feature from the Corbett Report 2009 video archive, and that is an interview that I conducted last year, late last year, with Motofumi Asai, the head of the Hiroshima Peace Institute. And I visited him, as I explain in the video, just as Obama was in the country, in Japan, uh, making an official state visit, and there was some talk about whether or not he would actually visit Hiroshima, as he said he may actually do someday, which would, of course, be quite precedent-setting, because no uh, sitting, or in fact, no U.S. president of any sort has ever set foot in Hiroshima, and it would be quite a momentous thing, because, of course, of the history of that city. So there was some talk about it, but of course Obama decided not to come. And so I used that as an opportunity to launch a, an interview with Motofumi Asai talking about Obama and, of course, his reception of the Nobel Peace Prize, which uh, I almost forget about it these days, but it is just such a ridiculous thing looking back on it even now. I can only imagine how that's going to be seen several years from now, but at any rate, it is a slice of 2009, and it's something very interesting to look back on. So let's take a listen to this video, an interview with Motofumi Asai of the Hiroshima Peace Institute. Hello, this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com here in Hiroshima in western Japan. In the Hiroshima Peace Park that marks the epicenter of the blast that rocked this city 64 years ago. It's November 2009 and U.S. President and Nobel Peace Prize recipient Barack Obama is currently on a state visit to Japan. He was petitioned by the mayors of both Nagasaki and Hiroshima to visit Hiroshima and the Peace Park, but like every U.S. President since that bombing, he has declined that request. Today I had the chance to talk to Motofumi Asai, the president of the Hiroshima Peace Institute, about Obama, the Peace Prize, nuclear disarmament, and the meaning of real and lasting peace. Well, uh, first of all, uh, 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 
I was uh, surprised when I watched the uh, NHK broadcast in which uh, he told his willingness to visit Hiroshima and Nagasaki when it would be appropriate or something, uh, or in his presidency, which may continue at least four years, or well, if he is successful in managing his domestic affairs, he could uh, be a, a U.S. president for eight years. Eight, eight years. Well, anyhow, it is clearly not now. <laughs> but uh, anyhow, uh, his uh, such remarks uh, have given the uh, hope on the part of Hiroshima citizens that he may come someday. So, uh, well, uh, I personally don't think that uh, uh, his coming to Hiroshima can promote the earlier nuclear abolition. Uh, it is one thing uh, for him to express his determination to lead the world to a nuclear-free one. Uh, it is entirely the other for him to, to be really determined to depart from the uh, so-called so -called nuclear deterrence policy or to, to, to stick to the, the uh, present nuclear policy. Uh, I am not quite optimistic about it. Although, he, uh, in a very long historical term, his uh, speech in Prague, in Czech uh, Republic, in April, uh, may be uh, remembered as a departure from the nuclear century to, to the non-nuclear century. Uh, it's, it's just a historical assessment, but it would not affect the uh, near-term U.S. nuclear policy. And I am rather sober about the uh, prospects of the uh, of the of the of the possibility of US the uh, change of US nuclear policy the situation in Afghanistan is perilous and urgent we must act now to reverse a deteriorating situation uh, i called uh, over a year ago for additional US troops to be placed in Afghanistan as well as more non-military assistance and more support from our NATO allies. Uh, and I'm glad that there's a growing consensus back home that we need more resources in Afghanistan. Uh, we should not wait any longer to provide them. Well, very simply speaking, I think uh, there can't be any justifiable wars if uh, they are uh, initiated by the stronger powers against the weaker states. Uh, so, uh, well, uh, although I, uh, I am not a uh, believer in the uh, imperialist theory, 
But uh, nevertheless, I think uh, the, the U.S. policies since 1945 uh, has been, by and large, imperialistic and militaristic, uh, which could not be justified. Well, well, if the United States uh, did not initiate any military actions or invasions, there, uh, there could be far less wars in the world, in the world since 1945. And I don't support the theory of uh, just war in the case of uh, Afghanistan, as against, for instance, Iraq. Uh, they are the same to me. <laughs> uh, well, uh, they are both unjustified wars. And uh, I... I was really puzzled when I learned that uh, uh, Mr. Obama did distinguish between the two, <laughs> uh, whereas denying the uh, justifiability of the war against Iraq, he still sticks to the uh, justness of his war in Afghanistan. But I have never been convinced uh, by his reasoning about his war in Afghanistan. So I, I think well, Mr. Obama will someday be forced to, to correct his wrong views about his argument in Afghanistan. Hmm. The Nobel Peace Prize for 2009 is to be awarded to President Barack Obama for his extraordinary efforts to strengthen international diplomacy and cooperation between peoples. Many people were surprised by uh, the Nobel Committee's selection of uh, President Obama as the Peace Prize. I was surprised as well. I was going to ask, what is your reaction to that? Well, uh, it was, uh, as widely argued, uh, I think it was the expression of the old continent, <laughs> as Lamusfeld expressed. Uh, the expression of the of the European countries uh, of the hope for 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 the recovery of reasonableness on the part of the United States, and uh, they put stakes on the uh, on President Obama. Uh, about such possibility, but uh, it is not the uh, expression of the firm conviction that Mr. Obama does change the present course of the U.S. policies. Mm. This is a hugely ambitious plan. Twenty-two thousand more troops. You're going to spending by 60%. Uh, you said in your announcement, we must defeat al-Qaeda. Right. Uh, this has really now become your war, hasn't it? I think it's America's war. 
Well, people who are interested in finding out more about the Hiroshima Peace Institute itself, I suggest you just uh, use a search engine, preferably scroogle.org or startpage.com, to find out more by typing in Hiroshima Peace Institute, because the URL is kind of long and difficult to say. But let's move right along, and let's get to what I think is probably the heart, the centerpiece of this uh, DVD. It's certainly the longest video by far. It's a conversation that I recorded with James Evan Pilato, of course, the co-host of New World Next Week at newworldnextweek.com. And we recorded a conversation way back in very early January of 2010. And we decided to record a conversation basically looking back at 2009 and putting together a list of the top censored news stories of 2009, i.e. the top stories that you did not hear on the nightly news or in the newspaper, but that were definitely very important stories and put that 2009 into perspective. And this is the type of thing that really does get more interesting the further away from 2009 we actually get, because uh, just going back and looking at this interview again for the first time in several months, I was reminded of some of the incredible stories from 2009 that... As we get further away, it starts to slip into the memory hole. But um, this is exactly what we're fighting against with by making this type of video. So a very interesting uh, uh, event. And I'm thankful, of course, to James Evan Pilato of MediaMonarchy.com for joining me for this. And that's uh, that's partly why I'm donating um, a, n- a number of discs to James Evan Pilato at MediaMonarchy.com. So, of course, you can buy the DVD at CorbettReport.com, but you can also get a DVD by making a donation to Media monarchy.com and i have not yet at this point sent the discs to james so it might be a week or two before he gets them but at any rate if you go to mediamonarchy.com and subscribe to his podcast he i'm sure he will be able to let you know the details about how you can go about getting a disc from him but at any rate let's take a listen to the top censored news stories of 2009 <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the top censored news stories of 2009. Uh, This is a very uh, special interview that I'm doing with my good friend and the co-host of the New World Next Week, a popular video YouTube series on the Corbett Report YouTube account. And uh, I have James Evan Pilato on the line. So, uh, James, thank you for joining me today uh, to do this. Thanks a lot, man. I'm, I'm excited to do this. Yeah, me too. Excellent. Well, uh, just to explain what we're doing here, we've decided that like the Project Censored, which every year releases a list of the top 25 censored or underreported news stories of the year, we're going to run down the top three stories of the, of the year that have been either underreported or are big stories that, that didn't get traction in the corporate-controlled media. So we've each selected three stories for today, and we don't know what stories the other person has selected, so we're going to be finding out uh, just right here on the spot. So it's going to be a very interesting way of wrapping up 2009, and as we're recording it, it's just turned 2010, so let's uh, take a look back at the year that was. So, um, James, uh, I, don't, I don't have any idea what stories you've selected, so why don't we get into your first story? What, what was the first one that you've uh, selected for the year 2009? The first story that I've selected, I think, goes to the start of one of my newer websites, in addition to MediaMonarchy.com. I started almost a year ago FoodWorldOrder.com as we realized that the food situation 
was becoming more and more important as the days went by. And the thing that solidified it for me, because we could talk about GMOs and Monsanto and all of these other massively important things, but my story is essentially the one that comes out of your tap, and that's the tons of released drugs tainting the U.S. water. Other reports, millions in U.S. drink dirty water. The stories came out over the year. The initial story that I'm sourcing here is an Associated Press investigative report. Tons of released drugs taint U.S. water. And I'll just read the first quick paragraph here. U.S. manufacturers, including major drug makers, have legally released at least 271 million pounds of pharmaceuticals into waterways that often provide drinking water. Contamination the federal government has consistently overlooked, according to an Associated Press investigation. This, James, is something you know that we did cover recently on the New World Next Week when the report about millions in U.S. drink dirty water, and that was a New York Times investigative report. This speaks to me and what we talk about a lot of times with the climate gate or climate control. All the attention is given to man-made global warming. So the idea that paying carbon indulgences to the same finance oligarchs is somehow going to help these environmental problems is such a huge misdirection. And they don't want us thinking about the GMOs or literally the drugs and the poison or the rocket fuel or the weed killer that are, that's in our drinking water. That's very, very true. And that's a, that's a very important story. Yeah, good, good idea, because that one touches on so many other things, including the ongoing eugenics agenda and the fact that these things are not ending up in our food supply and our water, drinking water by accident. There's very definitely an agenda being implemented here. So uh, absolutely very important story. Good call. All right, well, I'll, I'll share with you my first story. My, uh, my story, I have three stories, and, and they hit the beginning of the year, the middle of the year, and the end of the year. So for, from the beginning of the year, January 12th, 2009, uh, an editorial appeared in the New York Times by Henry A. Kissinger, and it's called The Chance for a New World Order, in which he espouses his uh, opinion that the Obama presidency is going to be the presidency in which the New World Order will be established by President Obama and his, uh, his great, uh, the great work that he will be performing around the world. I think his task will be to develop an overall strategy for America in this period when really a New World Order can be created. It's a great opportunity. It isn't just a crisis. And uh, I chose this story in particular because I, I, f I feel that it pretty much represents, to me, what I, I think the, the Obama presidency is really about. Obviously, 2009 was the year that we saw Obama come into office. He was inaugurated, inaugurated on January 20th, I believe, 2009. And he's been in office, as I speak, for almost one year. So we've, uh, we've gotten past the, the campaign rhetoric and the hope and change which was promised, and, and people are very much, I think, waking up to the fact that, yes, Obama is just another politician and he's not going to save the world. And in fact, he's going to continue the agenda that's been going on for a very, very long time and precedes him through administration after administration. So to me, one of the things that sums that up very well is Henry Kissinger, who I think most 
people who who have a passing acquaintance with politics would probably equate Kiss, Kissinger with the right side of the phony left-right paradigm, and they'd say that he's uh, obviously famous for for being Nixon's uh, Secretary of State. Uh, but of course, Kissinger was also has been involved in many, many, many administrations, including being a daily advisor to the uh, Bush administration uh, during the Iraq War, apparently, or so Bob Woodward reports. And now, of course, fronting for Obama. So it, it just goes to show the underlying reality of this administration and what the real agenda is, which is the new world order. So that was, uh, I think, a, a pretty important story for me in the way that it sums up to me, what is the Obama presidency? Well, and who was it that just recently in the Obama administration said, we take our daily orders from Dr. Kissinger? I don't, I don't recall. Right, 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 right. Yes. That was James Jones. Off or... the top of my head, I think it was Jim Jones. Yeah, I... <laughs> Jim Jones, which right. is yeah, the appropriate kind of name. Yeah, it, 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 yeah. Very appropriate. So, so if your story for your first story goes to the beginning of the year with the inauguration in January twentieth, this does lead perfectly into what would be my second story. And I put it all under the umbrella of what I'm just calling Obama's cabinet of horrors. That essentially what we've seen over not only the last year, but in the several months leading up to even the election, is again, Obama was essentially I've always kind of explained it to folks is that he was kind of a blank slate and he was more than willing to accept what people projected onto him of what they wanted change and hope to be. Now, whether that was, you know, progressive social issues or the war or the environment or money or any of that kind of stuff, he was always more than happy to just be like, yeah, I'll do that for you. I'll do that. Yes. You know, essentially being a yes man. So, what I'm calling Obama's cabinet of horrors is what we've seen is the complete continuation of the previous puppet administration, but it's all happening under left cover. One of the articles I source comes from Danger Room, and this actually does head back almost to the election of 08. So we're, we're fudging a little bit here as far as 09 goes, or at least I am on, on my end. Someone on Danger Room, I think it was the editor, Noah Shackman, basically said, this is as good as it gets. You know, we've got McCain versus Obama, and these guys are both great from their representative sides. And it made me put up my own posts asking, you know, this is as good as it gets. If the 04 election was the skull and bones election, then the 08 election was the trilateralist commission election. One of the main keys for me that breaks a lot of this down is the great clip from Obama deception going into basically who the players are. And it just goes down the list and says... Hillary Clinton, Bilderberg, Trilateral Commission, James Jones, Trilateral Commission, Bilderberg, you know, Bohemian Grove, essentially all the same semi-shadowy organizations that we saw during Bush that, again, the left was so good, the, you know, the folks that we saw like Olbermann and Maddow and people doing investigative work when it came to the party they don't like, but now that it has left cover, they're not doing the same bit of work, Project Censored, did go into Obama's military appointments have corrupted past. If you thought Obama was going to change something, wouldn't he have even maybe put up the front of changing gates as head of the military? I think not changing gates should really have shown people that nothing was really going to change. The other thing that ties back into the food is, of course, Obama taps former Monsanto vice president to head FDA working group. The front has changed. The agenda goes forward in Obama's cabinet of horrors. 
Absolutely right, and it's not really surprising that I think we both uh, picked up on that uh, independently, and uh, that's, uh, to me, one of the key aspects of 2009, and I think when people look back on this year, that's what <clears throat> that's what they're going to, to be thinking about when they, they think about what the Obama administration delivered versus what they promised. So, mm-hmm. um, absolutely, another good story, and just off the top of my head, that uh, that. Obama administration Bilderberg trilateral connection story did make it into a major publication, but off the top of my head, I can't remember what publication that was back in earlier this year. Hmm. Um, no, I'm not sure off the top okay. of my head. All right. I, I will, uh, I, you know what? I, this is the magic of editing. I'm going to put it up on the screen right now. <laughs> all right. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> It's a good thing what we can do things in post <laughs> that you can't see while you're watching. All right. Okay. Um, well, let's, this doesn't segue very nicely into my second story because my second story departs uh, quite, quite, quite a bit from that into a completely different realm. The second story that I, I chose was actually not from a news source. It was from the FBI. And this occurred in uh, June, no, sorry, July 15th of 2009. And it came under the headline of former P-TECH officer arrested for SBA loan fraud. And I felt this was an important story, not because it really represents 2009 in any important way, but because this story touches on what to me is one of the most important and really most fascinating aspects of 9-11, which is the story of P-TECH. And it's one that I've uh, attempted to tell on my podcast and in my various articles and things that I've done uh, numerous times. So I would definitely just encourage people to go out and to uh, to do a search uh, engine run for P-TECH, P-T-E-C-H, and start finding out about this company and its connections to 9-11. But this was basically just a press release from the FBI that came out, as I say, in mid-July of 2009, and, uh, basically saying that the um, someone connected to this P-TECH organization had been arrested at uh, John F. Kennedy Airport in New York, um, based on an indictment that uh, was unsealed earlier this this year from the FBI, and it relates to various uh, things that the FBI had uncovered during its investigation into this company uh, in 2002, and that relates to investigations that were going on since the 1990s and Robert Wright with the FBI. And again, it's much too big a story to really encapsulate here. Um, I would suggest people start looking into, uh, for example, the articles that I've written about P-TECH on my website. And um, again, this is this is not a representative story about this year, but it's about an extremely important story and an extremely important aspect of 9-11 that has uh, received almost zero traction in the media, unsurprisingly. Um, but um, and, and from what I can tell, from what I can see, there's really been no reporting about the case itself. There's, there's, I mean, it's just disappeared into the ether. So this is a story that I think should not go away. It should not die. People should be raising bloody, bloody hell and bloody murder about this because it's a very important story. But again, it's a process of educating people about the story because they're not hearing it on the nightly news. Well, and and actually, if I can, let me see if I can try and break this down and flesh it out a little bit. Because this, the the P-TECH story was the topic of, I believe, our first official interview with each other. James, you were a guest on Media Monarchy, and we did a whole talk this this past summer, July 09, about what we called the Cyber 9-11. Did the real Cyber 9-11 happen on 9-11? Basically, folks... 
P-TECH was a software company headed by someone the Fed said was an international terrorist, but somehow they had contracts to run software on FAA's computers and air traffic control and the DOD and the Pentagon. P-TECH for me is one of those stories that when I think about maybe conversations concerning 9-11 truth that I've had with folks who are, who are resistant and who have their own kind of arguments against, you know, the, the points. Times when I'm not as effective as I want to be, I'll later go, oh, I should have mentioned the software firm P-TECH. I should have mentioned the insider trading, the fundamental indisputable things that have to do with 9-11 truth that don't center around were the buildings blown up and was it a flight and did it hit the Pentagon and all those sorts of things. When we hit concrete things like P-TECH and people can go to the FBI and see your press release and read about the P-TECH story and weren't those raids, I believe, called the Green Quest raids, I, I believe, off the top of my head. Yes. All this stuff is documented and you can look at the work of, of people like Dave Emery and HistoryCommons.org and learn all about the P-TECH story. So I think this is a good one, and this keeps, you know, in, in this conversation, keeps 9-11 truth, you know, alive. Absolutely. Well, and, and you're right, very right to point that out. We did have an interview about that in July, about this exact story, in fact, in July of this year. So definitely people should go to MediaMonarchy.com and take a look at that interview, and uh, that's a good starting point, I think, for that. All right, so what have you, what, what have you got up for our third story? My third story is probably my, my cheater story in that it's not one specific story. It's several different events, and these are basically what I just refer to as convenient deaths and suspicious crashes. And we can look at, you know, from the most recent to the furthest away, deaths involving banksters, which, of course, we have the world, you know, the new financial world order being built and crumbling at the same time all around us in the last year, and suddenly CEOs start to drop. We've got, you know, Lazard CEO Bruce Wasserstein dead at 61. We've got guys connected to Rod Blagojevich, the disgraced uh, governor from Illinois, who at all ties around with trying to sell Obama's Senate seat, guys connected to that scandal, Christopher Kelly, key figure in Blagojevich corruption probe, dead. Indicted financier, Danny Pang, dies in California. Bruce Lazar, the guy I just mentioned. We also had, and this actually, the death happened in December of 08, but it's a story we still don't know all that much about. Key witness in Ohio election fraud dies in a plane crash. This guy was named Michael O'Connell. The short version is that basically he was Karl Rove's fixer of elections, which, of course, documented that 2000 and 2004 were both stolen elections. That guy, after multiple times of abandoning airplanes, saying, gee, I think something's fishy with this plane. I'm not flying it. After doing that several times, he finally took a flight, and wouldn't you know it, his plane crashed. We also have flight 3407. And this involves the death of 9-11 widow and activist Beverly Eckert, who only seven days after meeting with Obama with the Jersey Girls and with some of the folks who didn't take the payout, shut up money, met with Obama. He, you know, placated them and allayed their concerns, and she was dead seven days later. The biggest one that I followed over the year was the murder of a guy named William Bennett. And over 2009... 
I've done four main postings on MediaMonarchy.com about William Bennett. They are generally some of the first pages that will come up. If anyone searches William Bennett on Google, my articles and collections of data and info about William Bennett pretty much all bubble to the top. And I noticed a lot of the traffic that I got from around the world. And, and I think, you know, when you're doing a small website and you can keep track of who's visiting, you can kind of get a, a sense of things that are maybe more important or maybe there's something that I'm not really catching. And maybe why are all these other government organizations and places from around the world suddenly interested in this story? What happened was in February of 2009, in Loudoun County, Virginia, William Bennett and his wife Cynthia were out for a Sunday morning jog and they were attacked and beaten. Cynthia was essentially in a coma and put in the hospital. William Bennett was killed on the spot. There were early reports of the white van, that suspicious white van that you hear a reference to but then never hear anything again. We have since, in the months that have gone by, there have been young guys arrested in Loudoun County that essentially they got scooped up for a, basically a crime spree. There were robberies and there were thefts, and they basically tied in this beating of William Bennett into their crime spree. I don't believe they've ever confessed to it. What I'm getting at and what the key here is is that when you find out William Bennett was an ex-CIA agent who was involved in the faulty mapping that led to the CIA bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. When that hit me, it's when all these sort of bizarre connect the rogue network that someone like Webster Tarpley talks about, when we had the CIA and contract killers and Kosovo and the, the shadow government seemed to sort of reach up and strike someone down. Can I prove that any of these deaths that I've mentioned are conspiracies and someone had them bumped off and the CIA used shellfish toxin to kill them. No, I can't, and I'm not saying that they all you know, would, would have been like that. I think basically what I'm saying is you see these events and you see these crashes and you see these deaths and you think that can't be a coincidence. Am I, I don't know, what, what's, your, what's your take on the convenient deaths and suspicious crashes? Well, I, I would say certainly um, plane crashes have always been a convenient way of getting rid mm -hmm. of um, uh, people that are causing trouble to the system. So um, there have definitely been a number of those this year. And the uh, William Bennett story is very interesting. And if I recall correctly, um, a lot of the traffic you were getting was from China over that one, right? It was. And I could tell that people were even setting up, I believe, what are called VPNs, like a virtual private network as a way to bypass the censorship and get to my posting that had been basically proxied up on different websites. And that was, that's what I was talking about, the strange traffic and redirects that I got to the website coming from China. Very interesting, very interesting. Well, um... and, and again, it's, the, it's that thing that makes you go, am I on to something here? Because the attention certainly makes me think so. Right. Well, I, I guess you, you certainly are. So I, I certainly hope that we can find out more about that in 2010. But um, definitely a, a very big and very underreported story in 2009. Well, uh, there, there certainly have been a lot of suspicious deaths over 2009. So um, again, I would certainly hope people will go to MediaMonarchy.com and check out some of those stories because there's a lot to uh, uh, happening under the surface of those stories. Mm -hmm. And um, I agree, very important story. 
Well, for my uh, my third story, my final story for 2009, I thought that um, I'd like to somehow summarize the H1N1, uh, you know, pig flu scare that swept the world. And uh, I think there's really no better way to sum it up than a story that came out at the very, 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 very tail end of 2009. It came out on December 29th, 2009, and uh, this particular one is from CBS News. Uh, The headline was WHO Chief H1N1 Flu Pandemic Not Over. And um, this is a, to me, this is a representative of the H1N1 scare in general because uh, it touches on a number of aspects of the way that this was reported in the media. First of all, you have the scaremongering title, H1N1 flu pandemic not over, despite the fact that this flu, so far as we stand in early 2010, has killed less, far, far, far less people than the average flu kills every year. So we now know from this perspective that unless something changes in the next couple of months, this was a very, very mild form of the flu and really not something to end the world over. Um, despite what the media was telling us. So this this is representative of that. But also, if you dig down, 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 down in this article, down to the 11th paragraph, they calmly admit that Chen acknowledged she had yet to get her own H1N1 flu shot. Only just back from leave, she said she asked her medical service to find out where she can get vaccinated. Which is the uh, telling in so many ways, isn't it? Here we have the chief of the WHO. Oh, she hasn't been vaccinated for H1N1, despite the fact that, of course, her recommendation throughout the year was always that everyone should get vaccinated. Everyone needs the vaccine. Everyone has to get their H1N1 shot. And now, of course, the WHO is even being investigated by the European Union uh, as part of the collusion that may or may not have occurred with various drug manufacturers to hype up the flu in order to get their vaccines sold. So there's definitely, I mean, this this to me indicates what this story is really about, which is a a hype and a scare that occurred over something that did not justify it based on the idea that it will make money for drug manufacturers. Surprise, surprise, exactly as we predicted all along. And in fact, one of my first articles about the H1N1 scare was swine flu, who profits? And that's exactly what it comes down to, who profits? I thought when you first mentioned swine flu, you were going to mention a story that I briefly thought about having as one of my three stories, and that would be the strange case of Joseph Moshe, but that also still ties in with Baxter Pharmaceuticals and, and, and all those things. That's what's difficult in doing, I think, any kind of, you know, where we pick pick stories like that, because you start to sit back and then go, oh, but then there's that, oh, and then there's that other thing. I mean, to make a bad comparison, I recently put together for MediaMonarchy.com uh, basically a, a mixtape episode of my, a bunch of my favorite music from the first decade of 2000. And even just digging through that, it's like, oh, but there's that other thing, and oh, this is great, and there's so much. I mean, and I think that's basically what we'd say. You know, there's there is information overload. I know when I think about my my workplace, I work at an organic grocery store, and folks sometimes just like there's just there's too much, and I can't. When faced with so many choices, unfortunately, people tend to make no choice at all. That's very true, isn't it? That's, that's sad, but it's, it is true. And I think that that's something that uh, the, the oligarchs know about human psychology, that when faced with information overload, that will be the way that we, uh, that we 
deal with it is to turn it off or to tune it out or just not I can't follow it all so I won't bother but of course that's exactly what we're trying to fight against and 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 something like this yes it's extremely difficult and it's it's impossible of course to choose only three stories that really represent the entire year but it's important to do this type of exercise because I think it's one way to help in that process of sorting through uh, the information overload to try to find those pieces of information that are important for everyone. And as always, I trust uh, I trust your opinion on this because I know that you, you keep up with the news like no one else that I know, really. So um, it's it's great to do this with you, and I, I think uh, it's, it's definitely good to take a look at the year that was in order to understand the world that we're living in now, that we're still living in. And these stories, of course, will reverberate throughout the years and will continue to be important. So people should, of course, do their homework and continue checking into them. Well, and I think this is this is all basically also a big hat tip to the work that Project Censored does. And that is one of those things that, again, is always a real a, a big effective tool in the info war is that sort of in one link you could send that you could send that out and have someone read that list and just go, oh, my God, I didn't know these things. Yeah, that's a good point. And absolutely, we should give a big hat tip to Project Censored and ProjectCensored.org and encourage people to go there because, of course, in uh, the late stages of each year, they release their top censored stories for the year. So definitely check that out as well. All right, uh, James Evan Pilato, MediaMonarchy.com, FoodWorldOrder.com, uh, CyberspaceWar.com, many, many oh, valuable oh, websites. All in the kingdom there. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm glad the kingdom is there, and I hope the kingdom will continue to stay, stay strong and stay active in 2010 because we need more voices in that mix helping to sort through the information overload and discover the actual important information. So, James, uh, thank you once again for, for joining me, and uh, good luck to you in 2010. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. Take care. My good friend and co-host of NewWorldNextWeek.com, James Evan Pilato of MediaMonarchy.com. And moving right along, we're going to go into a video, that the audio of which you probably have heard before if you're a longtime listener of this podcast, because it is available as the very special episode 110B of this podcast as the, a, a message to the environmental movement. And this was one of my main viral videos of 2009, and the video itself is not the best production value, so... I took the liberty of re-recording the video and uh, releasing it on this DVD, so there's a much, much higher quality, better looking version of this video than is available on YouTube. So I think uh, this disc is, is valuable, if only even for that, this, uh, this message, which has now been seen hundreds of thousands of times if you add up the various different versions of it that are floating around online. But at any rate, I re-recorded the message to the environmental movement so it looks and sounds a little bit better than before, and at any rate, the, um, the message, I think, is as pertinent today as it was then, even if it is dealing specifically with the climate gate scandal that was erupting at that time, but it's important to put that into the bigger, bigger perspective of the carbon eugenics fraud. So, although maybe some of you have heard it again before, let's, let's hear it again. Here is a message to the environmental movement. Hello, this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and I come here today with a message for you. You the environmentalists, you the activists, you the campaigners, you who have watched with growing concern the ways in which the world around us has been ravaged in the pursuit of the almighty dollar, you who are concerned with the state of the planet that we are leaving for our children and our grandchildren and those generations yet unborn. This is not a message of divisiveness, but cooperation, 
This is a message of hope and empowerment, but it requires us to look at a hard and uncomfortable truth. Your movement has been usurped by the very same financial interests you thought you were fighting against. You have suspected as much for years. You watched at first with hope and excitement as your movement, your cause, your message began to be spread, as it was taken up by the media and given attention, as conferences were organized and as the ideas you had struggled so long and hard to be heard were talked about nationally, then internationally. You watched with growing unease as the message was simplified. First it became a slogan, then it became a brand. Soon it was nothing more than a label and it became attached to products. The ideas you had once fought for were now being sold back to you for profit. You watched with growing unease as the message became parroted, not argued, worn like a fashion rather than something that came from the conviction of understanding. You disagreed when the slogans and then the science were dumbed down, when carbon dioxide became the focus and CO2 was taken up as a political cause. Soon it was the only cause. You knew that Al Gore was not a scientist, that his evidence was factually incorrect, that the movement was being taken over by a cause that was not your own, one that relied on beliefs you did not share to propose a solution you did not want. It began to reach a breaking point when you saw that the solutions being proposed were not solutions at all, when they began to propose new taxes and new markets that would only serve to line their own pockets. You knew something was wrong when you saw them argue for a cap-and-trade scheme proposed by Ken Lay, when you saw Goldman Sachs position itself to ride the carbon trading bubble, when the whole thrust of the movement became ways to make money, or spend money, or raise money from this panic. Your movement had been hijacked. The realization came the first time you read the Club of Rome's 1991 book, The First Global Revolution, which says, In searching for a common enemy against whom we can unite, we came up with the idea that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine, and the like would fit the bill. All these dangers are caused by human intervention in natural processes, and it is only through changed attitudes and behavior that they can be overcome. The real enemy, then, is humanity itself. And when you looked at the Club of Rome's elite member roster, and when you learned about eugenics and the Rockefeller ties to the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute and the practice of crypto-eugenics and the rise of overpopulation fear-mongering and the call by elitist after elitist after elitist to cull the world population. Still, you wanted to believe that there was some basis of truth, something real and valuable in the single-minded obsession of this hijacked environmental movement with man-made global warming. Now, in November 2009, the last traces of doubt have been removed. Last week, an insider leaked internal documents and emails from the Climatic Research Unit at the University of East Anglia and exposed the lies, manipulation, and fraud behind the studies that supposedly show 0.6 degrees Celsius of warming over the last 130 years, and the hockey stick graph that supposedly shows unprecedented warming in our times. We now note that these scientists wrote programming notes in the source code of their own climate models, admitting that results were being manually adjusted. We now know that values were being adjusted to conform to scientists' wishes, not, rea not reality. We now know that the peer review process itself was being perverted to exclude those scientists whose work criticized their findings. We now know that these scientists privately expressed doubts about the science that they publicly claimed to be settled. We now know, in short, that they were lying. It is unknown as yet what the fallout will be from all of this, but it is evident that the fallout will be substantial. With this crisis, however, comes an opportunity. An opportunity to recapture the movement that the financiers have stolen from the people. Together, we can demand a full and independent investigation into all of the researchers whose work was implicated in the CRU affair.
We can demand a full re-evaluation of all those studies whose conclusions have been thrown into question by these revelations, and all of the public policy that has been based on those studies. We can establish new standards of transparency for scientists whose work is taxpayer-funded and or whose work affects public policy, so that everyone has full and equal access to the data used to calculate results and all of the source code used in all of the programs used to model that data. In other words, we can reaffirm that no cause is worth supporting that requires deception for its propagation. Even more importantly, we can take back the environmental movement. We can begin to concentrate on the serious questions that need to be asked about the genetic engineering technology whereby hybrid organisms and new, never-before-seen proteins that are being released into the biosphere in a giant, uncontrolled experiment threatens the very genome of life on this planet. We can look into environmental causes of the explosion in cancer and the staggering drops in fertility over the last 50 years, including the BPA in our plastics and the anti-androgens in the water. We can examine regulatory agencies that are controlled by the very corporations they are supposedly watching over. We can begin focusing on depleted uranium and the dumping of toxic waste into the rivers and all of the issues that we once knew were part of the real environmental movement. Or we can, as some have, descend into petty partisan politics. We can decide that lies are okay if they support our side. We can defend the reprehensible actions of the CRU researchers and rally around the green flag that has long since been captured by the enemy. It's a simple decision to make, but one that we must make quickly before the argument can be spun away and environmentalism can go back to business as usual. We are at a crossroads of history, and make no mistake, history will be the final judge of our actions, so I leave you today with a simple question. Which side of history do you want to be on? For the Corbett Report in Western Japan, I am James Corbett. And now we move into the remaining video from this DVD is an interview that I conducted in December of 2009 with Joseph Princiota, a 9-11 victim's family member and the uh, webmaster behind CSI911.info. A very interesting site, Joseph Princiota, a very interesting man and uh, who has a background in, well, I'll let him explain it in the video because he'll explain it more accurately than I would in synopsis, but at any rate, a very interesting man who's contra constructed many very detailed models of, of the World Trade Center, which you can actually see in the video. Um, and he was uh, uh, in Japan as part of the AE 9-11 Truth uh, Richard Gage speaking tour that was happening in uh, late 2009, organized by Yumi Kikuchi, who organizes the 9-11 Truth conferences here in Japan. And he came with Richard Gage, and I met Joseph Preciota at the uh, Kobe version of the 9-11 Truth conference, where, of course, I also interviewed Richard Gage. But I uh, got a chance to talk to Joseph Princiota, and we arranged a time to meet for an interview just between us. And I recorded the interview, and again, a very, I think, a very interesting, very powerful message that's being delivered here. And Joseph Princiota, obviously a very good communicator. So again, uh, this uh, video is available on my YouTube site, and I will put in a link to that in the documentation section. But here it is, and here's the audio from the DVD. Good morning. Good morning, thanks. I'm Joe Princiota. I'm an Alaskan, and I'm also a crime scene investigator. Since my father's an artist and there is art in me, I'm really uh, an artist at heart. I approach life that way, but I have an engineering background, and I love to talk. 
So the attorneys liked the fact that I could build rather skillful and accurate models. In those days, the computers were just coming into 3D. Now I use the computers quite a lot and do my modeling in the computer. But I produce models that would uh, help the attorney uh, tell their story to the jury. Uh, to do that, I have to go to often the crime scene. I do a lot of criminal defense work. Uh, I kept a second apartment in Las Vegas for 14 years doing a, a good deal of, of criminal defense and what we call slip and fall. People who got injured at the hotel were suing the hotel, needed to make an exhibit of how they got injured. So my career has been on artistic communication, uh, World's Fair communication, courtroom communication, uh, and so uh, a lot of crime scene investigation. Uh, so when the situation with 9-11 came about, uh, I was fascinated by the first shock of what really was America's shock and awe. Uh, and I was overwhelmed. And uh, I, I didn't like what I saw from an emotional standpoint, and from a, a scientific standpoint, from just the physics of watching the pulverization of these buildings. And I had done many cases where steel workers uh, had been injured because during the assembly of a building, uh, for some reason, a, a purlin, a, a beam, a column had failed, or the, uh, work, uh, the workers' support area had failed, or on one of the oil rigs, uh, there was a badly designed crane. And when it swung around, the weight on the other side of the crane swung over the handrail. And in our, our particular case, our man got crushed by this movement. So I was a little familiar with steel, a little familiar with building construction, a lot and too much familiar with how people die and what happens to the body. And uh, another job my mother had there in Anchorage, Alaska, was she was coroner. So I've personally been to autopsies and all of this. As the news of 9-11 came in, uh, the structural failure of the buildings became more odd and, and curious to me. Uh, and so I began to look. Uh, the French gentleman who had the search for the Boeing uh, page uh, with the Pentagon really impressed me uh, that something was, was wrong with the story. Uh, it was later that the fact that two cousins had uh, both firefighters, and that's uh, Vincent, excuse me, that's my cousin Vincent Princiota and my cousin Sal Joseph Princiota, uh, were both firefighters, and uh, as a result of the issue of 9-11 on the day, Vincent had died in the South Tower with other firefighters. The firefighters lost 343 firefighters that day. Sal came to the scene late, because of another assignment, and he wasn't trapped in any of the buildings. But he, as you can tell, was a, a, a bit of a bodybuilder and uh, attacked uh, the pile uh, with, uh, with strength, and with vigor, and uh, without stopping. And as a result, uh, he uh, must have inhaled quite a volume of this extremely toxic powder. Uh, often I counsel different individuals who are part of the 9-11 Truth Movement, as I am part of the Truth Movement, but I am independent of any organization. I work closely with architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth, and I recommend anyone who wants to know more about this issue, that's a good place to start. Another page is just 911truth.org, but AE, 
911truth.org will get you to architects, engineers, scientists who, like myself, uh, have to testify in court uh, about their expert uh, opinion about something. And uh, so they approached the issue of 911 with the same uh, scientific approach. But my website is just uh, csi911.info. I offer information. And I say I counsel some of the truth movement folks because with those connections, uh, I'm, I'm in communication with a lot of, of folks. And I say uh, this is a passionate issue. Uh, we all have an idea about who did it. We all want to solve the crime. Uh, but please be careful how you speak about 911 uh, because uh, you can also be misled by words you've been given and you've accepted them, and one of them is dust. The buildings did not collapse into dust. Dust happens. There's dust in this room. Dust is natural. These buildings collapsed into powder. The people became powder. Powder is manufactured. These buildings did not collapse into their own footprint. These buildings powdered, pulverized, and moved outward in an explosive uh, demolition, uh, destruction. Uh, in addition to the Twin Towers, there's, of course, Building 7, with a model of which I don't have here with me today, and I apologize for that. Building 7, this is the 44th and 45th floor of uh, these towers, was 47 stories high and collapsed later on in the afternoon after never being hit by any airplane, a few small fires. That's a building that collapsed into its own footprint. The north wall moved south. The south wall moved north. The east wall moved west. And yes, the west wall moved east. Uh, it closed like a cardboard box, sealing into itself all of its contents. And what did it contain? It contained massive amounts of evidence in several major trials that were about to begin or were at that moment uh, ongoing. The trials of uh, securities and exchange, uh, trials regarding FBI uh, investigations, trials invo uh, trial involving Enron and the Enron uh, crime against California and other places. So that sealing up of that building at free fall acceleration, free fall is not a speed. Free fall is not a speed. Free fall is an acceleration. Use that word. Don't use dust. Use powder. It, it was it powdered. But Building 7, Building 7 was a classic controlled demolition. Building uh, Tower 1 and Tower 2 were planned demolition. But don't use the word controlled, I suggest, because it was out of control. It was overdone. It was a real crime not done by professionals. Building 7 was a controlled demolition, clearly pre-planned, falling at free-fall acceleration, faster and faster and faster during its first hundred feet. Just a classic, blowing out from underneath, somewhere out of camera, the supports sufficient to allow the building to accelerate. And that's what free-fall is. It's free-fall acceleration, which cannot be achieved unless there's nothing underneath the falling object. 
as, as a person is when they fall out of an airplane by design, hopefully with a parachute. Uh, they go faster and faster and faster until one of two things happens. Either their clothing forms enough resistance that they've reached uh, terminal velocity, which in the case of if you don't have a parachute, that's what it is. But if you have a parachute, the resistance to your fall is what slows you. The building began to be resisted by what was left was crumbling, was being crushed underneath. It's very important. Building 7, a controlled demolition. Tower 1 and Tower 2, a planned destruction, planned demolition. Uh, it's important that we uh, use the phrases that, that will bring us to our goal. What is our goal? It is the goal of the family members. It is the goal of, of those who wish to have the crime solved. A real investigation, a real investigation of the facts of 9-11, the facts that were evident on the day and the facts that have been discovered since. I'm a family member, a distant cousin of uh, Vincent Princiota and Sal Princiota, whose death is a direct result of the crime of 9-11. There are many more family members in 80 different countries. In Japan, 24 people were, were lost in the crime. All of us, as family members, have essentially one thing that we are asking the public in general. Help us. Help us to get a final, real, open, worldwide investigation of the crime of 9-11, an examination of the facts which have come to light in the years since the crime. Essentially, as they would say in Japan, we are asking, Taskete kudasai. Help us. Help us answer the question. Help us find the perpetrator of the crime of 9-11. Thank you. Joseph Princiota of CSI911.info Now, once again, I did not play the audio of Sunny Climbs of Western Japan, Santa Claus Brings 9-11 Truth to Japan, or the interview with myself about the Corbett Report, but those three videos rounded off to nine videos on this DVD. And I'm quite proud of this work, and uh, again, I stress this is all work that I was able to accomplish in my spare time while producing a weekly podcast and at least two weekly videos and etc., etc. Suffice it to say, there is an awful lot of work that goes into the Corbett Report, which I'm sure my listeners can and do appreciate. And I'm not asking for sympathy, because obviously I do it because I want to do it. But I really do need support in order to continue doing this and to hopefully even expand what I'm doing even further. Because this information, I think, is important and it does deserve to get out there. So that's it for this episode, this bonus midweek Documentaries That Matter episode of the Corbett Report podcast. And as I mentioned on the last episode of the podcast, I, I will be going on a Christmas slash New Year's holiday hiatus. So until we meet again in 2011, this will be the last podcast episode. There may be interviews popping up or videos popping up or articles popping up in the meantime, and hopefully there's going to be a site redesign coming up very shortly. But at any rate, we'll see what the new year brings, and I certainly hope that it will be a very happy and very truthful 2011. Until then, stay safe, stay warm, and enjoy the holidays.